Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Vladimir Putin says his nuclear arsenal is now invincible. We'll think through the Russian leader's declaration of a new reality. Venezuela's economy is shot. People are fleeing. We'll consider how the U.S. should react to upcoming Venezuelan elections. Education helps people get out of poverty. On our global activism segment, we'll hear about a scholarship fund aimed at helping children in rural Kenya. Don't forget, you can join the conversation on Twitter at WBEZ Worldview. At his annual State of the Nation address, Vladimir Putin made an announcement. He says Russia has two new undetectable nuclear delivery systems. He also said that they have a laser weapon and a nuclear-powered underwater drone, a hypersonic missile. We're going to talk about what happened today with Joe Serencioni, and he's from the Plowshares Fund. Thanks for joining us again, Joe. Sure, my pleasure. What did you make of this declaration? Uh, Vladimir Putin really threw out a lot of verbiage today and uh, a lot of posturing and a lot of new weapon systems. Yeah, welcome to the new arms race. We are deep in an, a new arms competition. Um, it involves other countries, but it's mainly between the United States and Russia. Uh, Putin feels that this is a response to the new nuclear weapons that the U.S. is developing that were announced last month in the the Trump administration's nuclear posture review. We said at the time that that these new weapons were in response to weapons that Putin had been developing for the last couple of years. So here we go. We are are off to the races. Some of these weapons that he announced are a little far-fetched. They're certain to face operational difficulties, like the nuclear-powered a very long-range cruise missile that he announced. Can you really put a nuclear reactor in a cruise missile? I'm dubious, but he says he can. Others are much more feasible, are already in advanced stages of deployment, um, like the new big, heavy 200-ton ICBM that he unveiled with this cartoon graphic of it um, circling the globe, both going over the North Pole and the South Pole. Why the South Pole? Because all our radars are pointed north. That's where all Russian ICBMs go now. Our, Our missile interceptors are in Alaska. You come up from the south and you fly right under all of that. So could this defeat U.S. missile systems as Putin claims? Absolutely it could. How about the hypersonic, so very fast, uh, cruise missiles that are air-launched, could, could those defeat missile defense systems? Absolutely. No question about it. We have no capability to shoot those down. Could we develop in turn new defensive systems that might be able to, well, you see where this is going. This is what an arms race is. So the best way to, to answer this is not to try to develop counters to it. It's to try to kill these systems before they're built. That's the most reliable kind of interception. Well, it's, is it clear how many of these systems are built and how many are, are tested or halfway built? 
There is a uh, he, what do you, what do you call the, uh, the the hypersonic air launch cruise missile? And you showed a video of this being dropped from a fighter bomber. Uh, that's deployed. That's what they did. They already have a very fast um, air launch cruise missile, and they've had similar weapons since the 90s. So they got that. The ICBM, we've seen them test it. Um, so that that's in a fairly advanced stage of development. It just hasn't been deployed yet. Uh, the underwater torpedo, uh, we don't know. Uh, he, he sort of leaked a response about it. He leaked the news about this a couple of years ago. It's explicitly mentioned in the U.S. Nuclear Posture Review. Uh, we take it seriously, so our intelligence services take it seriously. Uh, can it actually travel thousands of miles underwater? I don't know, but could it be launched by a submarine off the coast and go a few hundred miles? Almost certainly. If the U.S. were to enter into some sort of negotiations with Russia about the weapon systems everybody has here, what does that look like? It sounds like the things he is teed off about is our U.S. missile defense systems and the NATO troops close to Russia. Well, you yeah, go, you know, go, go back a little bit. In in December of 2001, right after 9-11, George, President George W. Bush used that emergency situation to pull out of a treaty that a lot of the conservatives like John Bolton and Dick Cheney and his administration never liked, the anti-ballistic missile treaty that limited the number of missile defenses either side could deploy. A lot of us warned that if you do that, you're going to set off an arms race. Putin, who was then president of Russia, said, don't do this. It's going to set off an arms race. Well, he did it anyway, and because of the 9-11, other nations went along with it. But, and it didn't, it didn't start an arms race. But Putin mentioned it in his speech. Uh, he, he said that in 2004, he went to the U.S. administration, he says, and he talked about all these new weapons that they were then just thinking about developing. Nobody listened, he said. Well, listen to us now. This is the quote, the headline quote from his talk. Listen to us now. This is what he's talking about. We told you we were going to do this if you went ahead with your missile defense plans. You didn't listen, and we're doing it. So what do you do? How do you stop this? Well, basically, you go back to the kinds of negotiations we've had with the Russians for decades, with with Richard Nixon, who who developed the anti-ballistic missile treaty, uh, with Ronald Reagan, who cut U.S. And, and then Soviet forces in half, and you go back to that kind of limitation. There's a very easy step that both presidents, Trump and Putin, could do right now, and that is extend the existing treaty, the New START treaty, which puts a cap on the offensive weapons. That's set to expire in 2021. Putin, in his very first phone call to Trump when the president was inaugurated, offered to extend it, Trump blew him off. He didn't like the treaty, said it was unfair. Well, maybe he should reconsider that. We would really like to at least keep the caps on the Russian system so they can't, uh, in developing new weapons, they're not also adding to the number of, of weapons that they have. The second thing they could do is actually start talking to each other about reducing the numbers of nuclear weapons, going back and looking at limits on missile defense. Because if the U.S. goes ahead, and apparently in a new report that the U.S. will release at the end of this month, is they're going to call for a vast expansion of missile defense systems, going from a few dozen up to hundreds of anti-missile interceptors. You do that, and the arms race is back in a full-throated way, in a way that we haven't seen since the 1960s. We should reconsider those plans. 
does the Trump administration budget on all this? Uh, is, are, have they, are they already planning for this nuclear arms race? Uh, it sounds like they, they are not the negotiating type, and he seems to like uh, as many nuclear weapons as, as possible. Exactly. Both presidents are talking with the same kind of autocratic bravado that characterizes strongman leaders. So, so President Trump, you may remember, told Mika Brzezinski back in, in December of 2016, let it be an arms race. We will outspend them and beat them at every turn. And he's continued to talk about this, but we want to be top of the pack, but we want more nuclear weapons and better nuclear weapons. So that's his M.O. That's the way he, th- he thinks we're going to beat him. And in some ways, he harkens back to Reagan. He thinks he's being Reagan-esque. But Reagan did it with the purpose of negotiations. He wanted to create a bargaining chip that would lead to big cuts, which Reagan eventually got. Trump doesn't seem to have that, 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 that part of the plan uh, with him. And you're actually playing into Putin's strength. This is the only area where Russia still remains a superpower. They have a a, a lot of nuclear weapons, exactly as many as we have. We're the only two countries in the world that count our nuclear weapons in thousands. Everybody else that has them, the the seven other countries have a few few dozen and a couple of hundred. We have thousands. This is Putin's strength. This is where he can compete with us as an equal. They can build very good nuclear weapons, very good missiles, very good cruise missiles. Um, It's not at all clear that in an arms race we would prevail. They might. I'm talking with Joe Cerencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund, and we're discussing the announcements made by Vladimir Putin in his State of the Nation address. He announced a lot more uh, nuclear-related weapons and uh, a new attitude towards uh, the, the arms race, essentially. I did want to move over and chat with you for just a second about something that's happening on Friday. Rick Perry is going to meet with Saudi officials, and the Saudis want to be traded, treated like the Iranians in the nuclear realm if the, the Iranians get to enrich, the Saudis get to enrich, uh, and the Saudis are about to go on a multi-tens of billions of dollar shopping spree for nuclear reactors. And um, the U.S. has some decisions to make about how they want to approach this. Yeah, not exactly the way the Iranians are treated. The Iranians have accepted strict limits on the existing enrichment capability they have. They're they're covered in inspectors and cameras and reporting requirements. They they are... It is a very, very limited program. What Saudi Arabia wants is the enrichment capability with no limits. Here's the story. One of the things that got us suspicious about what Iran's true intentions were uh, when they announced they were building a nuclear power reactor was that they, at the very same time, wanted to build a fuel plant to enrich uranium. The problem is the same centrifuges, the same machines that can enrich uranium to low levels for fuel can also enrich it to high levels for bombs. And there's no reason for a country like Iran with one, two, even a dozen reactors to make their own fuel. You can buy it on the open market from the countries that do make it. Well, Saudi Arabia is now saying that's what they want to do. They want to build 20 nuclear reactors and, at the same time, an enrichment facility. Well, the same suspicions we had for Iran apply to Saudi Arabia. There was no doubt in my mind that this is the beginning of a bomb program for Saudi Arabia, that that's what they want to do. And they want the U.S. blessing for it. And here's the problem. We might give it. We might give it. We're sending over Rick Perry, uh, who of all the most the recent 
energy secretaries knows the least about nuclear energy, the least about non-proliferation policies, the least about the history of the, of the Middle East. He may be perfectly willing to make a deal, and that fits in pretty well with the Trump administration approach to, to Saudi Arabia, which is all about business deals and and uh, ex- exchange of, of, of contracts, selling weapons to them. We might be willing to bless this, to say it's okay for Saudi Arabia to have a bomb program. This is the kind of thing Donald Trump said in the campaign. It's inevitable that Saudi Japan was going to get a bomb, Japan, North South Korea, etc. He may think this way. Again, it's, it's connected to the arms race thinking that we just discussed, that we want our friends to have these nuclear weapons. We want to have nuclear weapons, and we can prevent the other people from doing it. This is an extremely dangerous situation. What does do the U.S. and the Saudis really want? I mean, there's some suspicion that uh, they... What the Saudis want is to get Iran to reopen the nuclear deal, which is what the U.S. wants, and they could get the Iranians to agree to zero enrichment like the Saudis do when they have their nuclear program. Mm -hmm. Then everybody's happy. And everybody always says if the Saudis wanted a a nuclear weapon, they could always get one off the shelf in Pakistan from uh, their Mm -hmm. allies in Pakistan. Is this all just kind of a ruse to uh, reopen the Iran negotiations? Saudi Arabia is on the offensive in the region. They have started a war with Yemen, and they've been bombing Yemen with U.S. assistance for almost two years now. I think the death toll is over 100,000 civilians at this point, plus the famine. They are trying to push back on what they, they see as Iran's operations in the region. I don't think for the Saudis this is about creating a negotiating chip. I don't think this is about pressure to renegotiate the deal. I think this is about increasing their military capability. Um, I think they, the, the, I don't know if they've made a decision to get a nuclear weapon, but they certainly have made a decision to get the capabilities of building one. When you go down this path, it takes years. It takes billions of dollars. It takes building up an engineering core. You can't just do this from, from scratch or just with imported experts. So it would take a decade or more for Saudi Arabia to be in the position where they could use a civilian program to transition to a, uh, a, a weapons program. But that appears to be where they want to go. And the impetus from the U.S. side to deliver uh, tens of billions of dollars of contracts to firms like Exelon and other nuclear energy uh, companies that are in the U.S. and and have no expansion possibilities in the U.S., uh, this is probably a pretty strong impulse for the the Trump administration. And and if they don't get the contracts, somebody else will. That's right. It's a very mercantile approach to foreign policy. It's all about contracts. It's all about companies. It's not about long-term interests. It's not about non-proliferation regimes or international norms. No, it's just business. The same sort of illusion led us to negotiate a, a, a deal with India uh, in the in the in the W. Bush administration, where we agreed to waive some restrictions on India's nuclear program in in exchange for selling them, uh, uh, allowing them to buy nuclear technology. And we thought that was going to lead to contracts for U.S. nuclear plants. It did not. They went European instead. We thought it was going to lead to contracts for jet fighters from us. It didn't. (laughs) They went to other countries to buy their jet fighters. Um, But it was the same sort of business 
um, pursuits that that led them to sacrifice arms control, national security considerations for for commercial interests. I think that's the dominant force that's operating in in in, in the Saudi discussions as well, and. Trump is like George W. Bush on steroids. He, he, he's much more about business than W. Bush ever was. Well, we'll keep our eye on what happens when Secretary of Energy Rick Perry meets with Saudi officials on Friday. Thanks for joining us, Joe Serencioni, president of the Plowshares Fund. Thank you very much for having me. Venezuela has just moved their upcoming elections to May. We'll consider how the U.S. should react to what's happening in Venezuela. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. We're going to talk about Venezuela now. They've delayed their elections from the end of April to the end of May. And there's been an outflux of refugees in Venezuela as well. And with us to talk about this is David Smildy from the Washington office on Latin America, where he's a senior fellow. He's also a professor of sociology at Tulane University. And we've talked with him about Venezuela several times. Nice to see you again, David. How are you? Good to see you, Jerome. And with us also is Veronica Zubiaya, and she is a professor of sociology at Simon Bolivar University in Caracas, and she's uh, here uh, for a program at uh, the University of Illinois at Chicago and Northwestern today. Great to see you. Nice to meet you. Hi. Thank you. Um, I wanted to, you know, I only catch up with Venezuela every once in a while, and I was really surprised at the outflux of refugees and how many are right now pouring across the border into uh, Colombia and Brazil, uh, that officials from Colombia are running over to Turkey to try to observe best practices for refugee camps and things of that nature. And we're up around, what, what is it, 700,000 people who've, who've left Venezuela now? Actually, I think it's actually quite a bit more than that. I mean, what what uh, the the current uh, numbers just in Colombia now? They talk about six hundred and sixty thousand. You know, in the region between Colombia, Brazil, and the Caribbean, it's more like seven hundred and fifty, close to eight hundred thousand uh, that 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 have left Venezuela recently. People talk about it. it's very difficult to understand to know worldwide, but people talk about. It as much as 2 million and maybe 4 million. But right. I, I think that's really, uh, probably a little exaggerated. But at least 2 million, I think, think worldwide uh, Venezuelans. Of course, some of them left before. But there's been a – you know, this is a process. 80 percent of the people that have left in the last five years have left in the past, left in the past two years. And it's really accentuated since August, since the new Constituent Assembly was elected. Uh, it's just become just a stampede across the border. Mm-hmm. Uh, Veronica, could you explain some of the reasons that people are fleeing? I mean, there's mm-hmm. economic hardship. I think everybody recognizes that. But it, it's also more complicated than mm-hmm. 
Yes, I will say that <clears throat> starting from 2014 with the collapse of oil prices, things are getting worse and worse. So people in their daily lives, um, things such as um, getting food is becoming uh, very difficult. So you have food shortage. You have also all the insecurity crisis. You, we have to say that Venezuela right now is the country with one of the highest homicide rates. So that is also a one important reason why people are fleeing the country. But all the basic needs are becoming harder and harder. So even food. So You're a specialist in um, violence and mm -hmm. crime. And uh, could you explain what's been going on with, I mean, it seems like the crime that we're mentioning here is somehow connected to um, states, uh, state repression, and uh, the state seems to be really concerned about uh, politics and not so concerned about people's security. Hmm. Yes. Well, I mean, the history of violence in Venezuela is very long. I would say since the 90s, we had problems with crime. And then in during the, during the Bolivarian Revolution, crimes raised in very important ways. But what is happening is that, let's say, from 2015 and onwards, the state has developed military operatives and it has become a violent actor itself. So you can, um, you can, um, for example, in 2016, the state was responsible for 20, uh, for 4,000 killings. So that means that the state is responsible for 21% of all the violent deaths in Venezuela. So that is also a very serious thing. Uh, now, um, I was reading statistics about how many Cuban military advisors there are in Venezuela, and the, and one of the OAS officials said 15,000. Um, it, it almost sounds, and sometimes people say, well, Venezuela has Cuban-like repression hmm. now. But the thing you're describing with, um, you know, militarized um, people and groups of uh, citizens who are, you know, kind of uh, self-defense forces, whatever you want to call them. It sounds more Columbia to me. Hmm. Um, what, what kind of, what, how do you characterize what this? Yes, I will say, um, I won't compare it with Cuba because it's more a disorganized violence because you have right now a diversity of armed actors that contribute to violence. You have like youth gangs, but right now you have also prison organized um, crime gangs and also you have a more organized crime. So you could compare it more to El Salvador where you have a very violent police and then you have a more and more organized crime networks and then you have prison Um, gang. So it's more like El Salvador. All right. That's an interesting thought. We're talking about what's happening in Venezuela with Veronica Zubiaya. She's a sociology professor at Simon Bolivar University in Caracas and David Smaldi from the Washington office on Latin America, where he's a senior fellow. He curates their Venezuelan politics and human rights blog, which I read pretty often. And uh, David, I, I wanted to talk a, a bit about the economic situation Uh, that people are having in, in Venezuela, and it sounds so bad. And I noticed the government recently went uh, for a cryptocurrency and decided to make a cryptocurrency called the Petro, uh, backed by petroleum and gas reserves or something. 
Um, this this seems like a unlikely hail mary to save the economy in Venezuela. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the base situation in Venezuela, the reason people are so unhappy and want to change the government is, is because of the economic situation. It's, it's, it's horrendous. And this has been a, a decline really in the past four or five years. It's really sort of come to a head this year. Um, it's, there's some statistics that just came out last week that's, they're actually from August from a, a poverty survey that's done yearly that had some really alarming uh, statistics. So just to give you a sense of what this means on the ground, the, the, this decline, this hyperinflation and, and this uh, uh, decline of the economy, 80% reported that they had eaten less involuntarily in the past three months. Now, 60% of, of the respondents said that they had gone to bed hungry at some point in the last three months because they couldn't get food. It's the majority of the population. Mm-hmm. No, 65% of the people said they had lost weight in the past year. And on the average, that was 11 kilos. No, so we're talking like 20 to 25 pounds on average. No, and so that's it's just a dramatic impact on the population. And the economic situation has only gotten worse. I mean, Venezuela has a big problem, balance of payments problems, trying to make its payments. On top of that, the United States implemented sanctions in August that basically prohibited U.S. banks from issuing new debt to Venezuela. Uh, there's a big problem with overcompliance with, with those sanctions as well. So it's really made it almost impossible for Venezuela to get new debt, and they're sliding into default. And so the situation has just gotten much worse. And and that's why I think really since December, I think every month it's just it's just getting uh, it's really just going off the cliff. It is can China or Russia bail them out in any way? Well, you know, I think China and Russia both have real interest in Venezuela as being sort of a regional gadfly. I think they have a geopolitical interest. And, and uh, China already has $60 billion worth of loans to Venezuela. The thing is the Chinese tend to like to get paid back and, it, and it's very difficult for them to get paid back. So they don't seem to want to do any more exposure. Russia is very clearly willing, and they refinanced the, the the five billion or so in debt that Venezuela had back back in November or so. Uh, but they they just don't have enough money. They just don't have really much enough money to bail out Venezuela right now. But so you asked about the cryptocurrency. Yeah, I mean this is an idea. Originally, the idea is to sort of uh, circumvent these sanctions to try and, and raise some new cash. Of course, it's actually not a cryptocurrency at all. A cryptocurrency. The characteristics of it is that it's based on nothing. It's backed by nothing. And it basically just has to do with trust, trust in the blockchain uh, uh, arrangement that allows people to review transactions. And Venezuela is promoting what's basically just an electronic currency. It's backed by something. It doesn't have the blockchain uh, uh, arrangement. And so it's not really a cryptocurrency. It's really sort of electronic oil futures. And this oil is in the ground still. I mean, it's not even in fields that are developed. There's not, there aren't even roads to this this oil field that has the oil that supposedly is going to back up the crypto. And so I don't think that this is going to be much of a solution for them. You know, I, they, I think they are going to use it and, and oblige some people to receive payment in the, in the Petro. The, the um, only people who would be likely to invest in this are people who want to clean up their money a little bit? Is that what that well, that's, I mean, I can't think of it. That's kind of the story you know. of cryptocurrencies in general. That's why people do them oftentimes. The reason they exist is, is that they, you know, they allow very obscure and, and dark transactions. And so there's that. I don't really know why anybody would want to invest in this currency. I mean, the, the Venezuelan currency itself is backed by oil, you No, know? and, and I mean, the, the irony of the situation is that 
This is a government that doesn't believe in markets, yet it's trying to float a currency. Cryptocurrencies are market logic at its absolute expression. No, it's, it's basically only based on trust in markets, and you have this government that doesn't trust markets. And so it's, it's you know, I think it's just another ill ill-worked out and not very well-worked-out idea to try to uh, surf this crisis. We're talking about what's happening in Venezuela, and we're going to move on to the elections now with David Smildy from the Washington Office on Latin America and Veronica Zubiaya, a professor of sociology from Simon Bolivar University in Caracas. Uh, what did you make of the delay in the elections from April until May? And this has been uh, people have been criticizing the government for not allowing enough time for the opposition. There is a candidate who is going to stand in the new elections now, an opposition candidate uh, uh, other than Nicolas Maduro. Uh, and what's what do you think is going on with the delay? Um, it's funny because you said uh, that you, you only look at Venezuelan news once in a while. Well, I mean, even if those of us who look at it all the time, after I prepared my notes for this interview this morning, getting here, I got a message on my cell phone that this had happened. So it's hard to even to ever keep on top of this. I mean, the, the situation is that this, this, this is an election year, and this is what everybody's waiting, been waiting for for a long time. But the government, what it did is move up the elections. It moved up the elections, and it has a con an, an electoral context that is very clearly unsatisfactory. So after weeks and months of negotiations, the opposition last week or the week before said that they were not going to go to elections. They would not accept these conditions. But there was another candidate, somebody who's allied with the opposition but a little bit more centrist, who said he is going, and he made a, a number of demands. And so one of the things he said is, you know, to extend the date and international observations. So they apparently uh, seem to be ceding way to that because, of course, for the government, there's a big question of legitimacy. You no, know, it's, it's important for them – uh, uh, in the eyes of the international community to have an election that actually has an opposition candidate. So for if the opposition were to completely boycott, it would be a big problem for the government. So they want to try and give give way enough that they can get an opposition candidate to participate full in, in a full way but not give so much that they're going to lose the election because it's very clear that if there were really fair electoral conditions, they would lose the election because they only have 20 25 percent support. Um, what should the U.S. reaction to this be? Uh, the, uh, the United States right now, people are saying, well, you sh if it's a bad election, you should not recognize it. But that there's a lot of bad elections out there that the U.S. maybe should not recognize. Um, and just choosing this one, I mean, Honduras had a pretty bad election and the U.S. just recognized it. Uh, what, 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 should the, what should the U.S. reaction be to this? I guess it should wait a little to see the evolving process because if finally the government accepts like the minimal conditions, it might work even though the opposition is in a very um, difficult uh, situation. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the, you know, the U.S. government, traditionally its problem in the region beyond the content of what it does is that it tends to be tends to go it alone no it tends to think that it need, it knows what needs to happen and it tries to act on itself uh, by itself and that has a lot of counter uh, counterproductive elements. No, it, it, it makes it into a binational conflict between Chavismo and the U.S. government, which is which is very much fits into the discourse of Nicolas Maduro. So what the U.S. government has to do, it has to act multilaterally. It has to act with other 
other governments. And there's there's actually been some pretty interesting developments in the past year on this. You know, on the one hand, the sanctions that the U.S. rolled out, different versions of these sanctions have not, now been adopted by Canada and the European Union, which makes that makes, makes them much more effective and gives them much more credibility. There's also something called the Lima Group, which is a group of 14 countries in the region that are pressuring Venezuela uh, to have legitimate elections, and that, and that group does not involve the United States. And I think that's a very positive development. The U.S. The U.S. has very much has not tried to impede this, and so I think I think that's the, the important thing. I think you know there's well, got to the, be a lot US of pressure. The U.S. keeps suggesting wacky things like there should be a military coup. Ah. Yeah, I, I mean, and that's and that's the thing is yes. that you know we have a president that sort of himself uh, goes on uh, and, and says whatever comes to mind. And so I think there, there is a real danger that the United States could really mess things up by, you know, military action, promoting a coup, or I think even oil sanctions, sanctioning Venezuela's oil economy is really going to make conditions much, much worse for people and, and exacerbate this refugee crisis. Hmm. Yes, we had also the experience um, of the 2002 coup d'etat where the United States supported the coup and that was terrible um, for the opposition and for the future um, development of the process. So. Well, maybe they'll be distracted by something else. And, and <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think, I think actually Venezuela provides uh, the problem right now is that Venezuela provides a distraction for a government that does not have many international achievements to point to. No, it's not getting very far in North Korea. Mm-hmm. It's not getting very far with NAFTA, with Iran. And so Venezuela, I think they think, well, this is an environment in which we could actually show our might and actually have a foreign policy achievement. Well, we'll keep our eye on what's happening in Venezuela. Thanks for joining us again, David Smildy from the Washington Office on Latin America, a senior fellow there and a professor of sociology at Tulane University. And it was great to meet you, Veronica uh, Zubiaya, and she's a sociology professor at Simon Bolivar University in Caracas. Thank you very much. Thank you. Coming up after the break, we'll have our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place and we'll learn about a scholarship fund for deserving students in Kenya. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our global activism segment where we feature people who make the world a better place. Brett Weiss has started a scholarship fund for children in the rural village of Dago, and he's written about his experiences in a book, Just Give Them a Hug and the Rest Will Be Easy, How One Person Can Make the World a Better Place One Child at a Time. And it's great to see you, Brett. Jerome, thank you. It's an honor to be here. Tell us a little about yourself and how you came to do this thing. Who are you? Why did you want to go to Kenya and, and start a scholarship? Fund? <laughs> well, I really just always wanted to go to Africa. I'm a chicken at heart. I went back to teaching in 2004 so I could have summers free. Uh, bottom line is I finally went in 2009, and I had no idea, but it would totally change my life. And a little village in Kenya became very, very a big part of my life. 
Now, you're a um, social studies teacher? I, I've actually left that. I, I officially retired, even though I don't like that word. Um, <laughs> and I really left because this is kind of my full-time pursuit. Uh, my mission really now is to try to make this something, because it's named after my parents, uh, and make it something that will last beyond my lifetime. You went on a volunteer vacation, and that's how you... <laughs> vacation, okay. <laughs> is, is how you got into this? Yes, it was a volunteer experience, and... Um, I didn't pick Dago. The organization I went with asked me where I wanted to go, and I go, I don't know, send me somewhere. And I went to Dago and uh, spent almost three weeks there. And what happens is you fall in love with the people and the kids, and they're as poor as poor can be, but they're the nicest, hardest-working people I've ever met. What's it like there in Dago? Uh, people live in little mud huts. Mud hut is smaller than your living room. Anywhere from five to 15 people will live in a mud hut. Uh, that's a lot because AIDS has devastated that part of the world, and it's very rare for a child to have both parents who are alive, so there's mixed families. No electricity, no plumbing. Most people don't live till 40. There's no medical care. Uh, and then the key, which is really about this story, is most uh, kids quit school about fourth grade. Uh, yeah, yeah, that, uh, that's um, really early. <laughs> and, yes, and you're and you're so are there you're you're doing a high school scholarship yes. fund, and and that's uh, it gets to what I had to learn is the reason they quit in fourth grade is the government pays most of primary school, but it does not pay for any of high school. So by the time they're in fourth grade, they kind of realize they're never going to get to high school because their parents can't even buy food. How are they going to go to high school? So they quit because they can go out and work in the fields and maybe make a dollar or so a day and help their family. And so what I'm trying to do is get them to stay in school longer and send as many to high school as I can. Now, you mentioned Dago. Um, it's uh, a Luo area. The Luo yes, Luo ethnic. is the tribe, yes. And this is the uh, ethnic group of Barack Obama's father. Yes. And uh, you talk about in the book that you were reading his his biography, his autobiography, when you were there. I was. As a matter of fact, as I took in the book, I was getting ready to land in Nairobi the first time, and I was reading the part in his book where he and Michelle were getting ready to land in Nairobi for the first time. <laughs> So it was really something. And matter of fact, in 2009, because they're very proud, obviously, of a son of a Kenyan became president. I don't know how, but they had Barack Obama T-shirts and caps and things like that. I don't even know how they got them. <laughs> uh, uh, did, did you feel any um, connection from that with people? Yes, uh, especially being from Chicago, because the adults, many adults would know an Obama and the Chicago connection. Many adults would say, do you know Barack Obama? And I would kiddingly go, oh, yeah, I, you know, Barack and I hang out and stuff <laughs> like that. But no, uh, yeah, the Chicago connection did, it created a better connection there, yes. You were, it sounds like you were immediately drawn towards the educational possibilities there. I mean, there was, there's other issues, um, but sometimes you find that the, the issues you think are a problem, they, they're not, not as concerned about or you know, not as prioritized as, the, as, as you right. might think. Yeah, everything's a problem at a place like this. You know, safe water, clothing, food, everything is a problem. Um, you know, I, I spent half of my life as an educator. I'm passionate about education. My parents were passionate about education. Um, and so eventually I said, the only way you turn a situation like this around is if you can get kids to go to school and get an education. And that's really why I started this. The, what kind of um, strategy did you develop there? Because you seem to have had a very um, deliberate, made some deliberate decisions right off the bat that have served you well. Yeah, and when I started, I, I, people think I had a master plan. I really didn't. I just kind of took it day by day. But two key things that have served me well is, one is life is much, much tougher for girls there. 
and they tend to score lower on the tests that we pick students from. And so we made a decision that all money would get divided equally between boys and girls because the girls tend to score lower uh, on the exam. Um, so we sent 21 girls and 21 boys, uh, and that gets me in trouble with some parents there because we've sent girls to high school who had lower scores than boys we did not send to high school. And this is an area where test scores are king. If you, if you yes. get the good test score, you, you go on. It's all about the test scores. And, uh, and it isn't like, like if you live in Dago, I used to tell my students this, it isn't like you applied to Northwestern and you didn't get in, so you go to U of I instead. It's still a pretty good school. You either get my scholarship or you don't go to high school, and then your life probably won't be different than your parents. That's a pretty tough nugget to be responsible for, isn't it? It is. Sometimes when I sit in an eighth grade classroom there, I look around and I know I'm going to be able to help some of these kids. And by the way, even before eighth grade, most of them didn't even make it that far. But I know even most of the kids in eighth grade, I'm not going to be able to help. And that gets very sad. I'm talking with Brett Weiss. He started a scholarship fund for young people in Dago, Kenya. And uh, we're talking about the whole experience there. Uh, tell us about some of the people you, you mentioned. You've, you're up to 42 now? Uh, 42. We've awarded 42 full four-year scholarships. Uh, another key role is when we award a scholarship, it means the money's there for all four years so that they don't have to worry about losing it. Um, and it totally changes their lives. Mostly when I go there now, I visit the kids. They're at boarding schools. And it is so exciting to hear their stories because in Dago, they didn't know anything about the world outside of Dago. At high school, they have electricity, some internet, some computers, uh, radio, TV, and the world has opened up and it's really exciting to talk to them. What kind of... Uh people are they? What kind of experiences and backgrounds do they come from? Uh, they're pretty much all farmers. Um, they try to grow enough food to feed themselves. One of the things I tell them, I'm from the south side of Chicago. I don't know anything about farming. They really don't know anything about farming, and they've been farming for hundreds of years. And that's part of why they're so poor uh, and part of why they, they can't feed themselves. So one of the things – I have a lot of things I'd like to get to is to bring in people who could teach them modern farming techniques so that maybe they could at least feed themselves. Uh, what kind of things do they want to do after – what kind of opportunities are there after high school for them? It's tough because the economy there is very backwards. Uh, it is starting to change. But um, we have four of our early students who are at university now. They're going to do just fine. Uh, but several of our students graduated high school, but they did not get to university. It's very difficult to do that. So I'm looking now into my big thing is vocational training. And I've been talking to a number of vocational schools in Kenya. We like to start sending kids to learn how to be a plumber, a carpenter, an auto mechanic, things like that, because more and more there are going to be good jobs in that. How far are they from the big city? <laughs> uh, they're far from anything. Um, you know, Dago is about a 10-hour trip by car from Nairobi, the capital. Uh, you go over lots of dirt roads, and it takes forever to get there. Do kids think, well, that's where my future is? If I can graduate high school, I can get a job in Nairobi? Yes. Um, the reality there is people ask me, are they going to come back to Dago and help out there? The reality is they probably are not, because once they've left Dago, they've seen a whole other world, and they're probably not going to come back. However, it is very ingrained in them to help other children the way they've been helped. And every one of them, and we actually ask them to write a bit about this, every one of them is committed to helping other people back in Dago. Uh, tell us about the specific individuals you've met. Um, I guess I'll talk about uh, Lenser, a girl who uh, in her first year of high school, uh, we do these video interviews that I put up on YouTube. And I asked her what she wanted to be when she grew up. And she's a very outgoing, bubbly girl. 
And a big smile comes on her face, and she says, I want to be a TV broadcaster. And she'd be wonderful at that. But what's really cool about her answer is if I asked her that question a year earlier in Dago, she never would have said that because she had never seen the TV. She probably saw a woman do the news and said, I'd like to do that. <laughs> uh, tell us about another person. Well, I, I, I guess I'll talk about a child in eighth grade and my first trip there. This was a real eye-opener for me. It's a story I tell in the book. Um, he had run, his, pencil, his pen ran out of ink, and he was, in, he was crying, and I gave him a pen, and he said, thank you. At the end of the class, he wanted to give me the pen back. I said, no, that's okay. You can keep it. I asked the teacher, why was he crying? And the teacher's response was what was going on in his mind is he might never be able to get another pen, and then he would have to quit school. And that was my very first day there. I was like, wow, I, you know, I'm not in Kansas anymore. The children there have so little. Uh, you handed out pencils, and it was an enormous big deal, and they had never seen a pencil sharpener before. Yes, it's another story. Yeah, it was 50 pencils. This was about my second or third day. And then I, t- I took out a little pencil sharpener we paid, what, about a dollar for? None of them had ever seen a pencil sharpener. Even more, though, most of the teachers had never even heard of a pencil sharpener. They take knives and they whittle. And I was mad at myself that day because I only brought one little pencil sharpener. Every time I go now, I bring, well, a bag of pencil sharpeners and all kinds of supplies because they barely have the basics of what we would have here. How good were the teachers that the, the kids were exposed to? Um, it's in primary school, to be very honest, they're not very good. You go to two years of a teacher's college to teach primary school. They don't know much about the world. They don't really understand much about teaching. I think most of them are trying very hard, but they don't know much. When they get to high school, and the kids notice this right away, the teachers are very different. You have to have a university degree. Many of them have master's degree at the high school, so the teachers there are much better. But the primary school, they're really just not very good. Are you worried about how to get test scores up so that they can do well? Yes. Oh, actually, that's a great question because I have many side projects. I've actually, with another group, (laughs) we've started a daycare there, a preschool. And we're in the fourth year of that now, and I'm only partially involved in that. But the whole idea is, you know, the first grade teacher told me last summer she's thrilled because kids come to first grade. They don't have kindergarten there. Uh, they come to first grade, and they know their letters, and they know their numbers, and, and they never knew that before. So we're hoping we'll see by the time they get to eighth grade that will result in better test scores and also doing much better when they get to high school. I'm talking with Brett Weiss about the scholarship fund he has set up for Dago. It's a small town, rural town in Kenya, and he's got a book about his experiences. Just give them a hug and the rest will be easy. His website is hopefordago.org. And you named your scholarship fund after your parents. Yes, I did. Uh, They had passed away a few years earlier um, in a – just a few months from each other. Uh, they grew up very poor right here in the city, uh, depression babies. Uh, they worked very hard. They were passionate about education, made sure that me and my brothers had a great education. We've had this great life. So when I started this, for me, it was natural just to name it after them. It sounds like a lot of people who uh, try, who want to support scholarships uh, want to remember people who helped them with their education. Yes. Um, Y- y- yes. Um, I'm not quite sure where to go with yeah, that. The, the, um, the, uh, there's people who say, well, my parents, I'd like to honor my parents and, and give, the, give, yes. give a scholarship in their name. What's happened is we've grown 
in recent years, when, when I first started this, I was just looking for donations. Give me $5. Give me $20. We actually have had, in the last couple of years, a number of our scholarships are all paid for by one person or one family. And it's usually in honor or memory of someone. And we make up these very nice plaques that the child gets one of and then the, the family sponsoring gets one of. And they love the fact that it's sponsored after their late mother or late father, things like that. How much does it take to sponsor a kid through four years of high school in Dago, Kenya? Yes, and that's the best part of all, Jerome. It's $3,500 for four years. People think that's one year. Uh, I put two kids through college, okay? Uh, $3,500, they're boarding schools, room and board, everything. It pays for $3,500 totally changes the child's life. Um, how do you, how do you do that? How do you how do you raise the funds to do this? Do you have a, you're up to forty now? So I'm doing my multiplication. It's getting pretty. Uh, yeah, you have twenty dollars on your room. <laughs> um, just everything and anything. I've been. Um, I'm not a professional fundraiser. Now I'm starting to work with some people who are going to help me do that better. But it's literally friends, family is how it starts with, emails, social media. I do a lot of speaking now to groups and raise a little bit of money here and there. It's just whatever I can do to raise money. I notice you're going to be at the Bartlett Public Library on Wednesday, March 14th at 7 p.m. Yes, thank you for mentioning that. Yes, because I just I taught at Bartlett High School the last 13 years. So it's very special to me that they've invited me to be there. And um, and you've also you've managed to grow so much. You hired someone in yes. uh, Dago, Kenya, to kind of do the do the on the ground yes. work. Yes, it's a big moment for us because and the reason we do that. This is much more than sending money. I tell people all the time. In a sense, money is easy. We are very involved in their lives. I visit all of them. I know all of them. I know the families. I know the parents and so on. And it's gotten so big, I can't be there all the time. So I hired a young man I met last June who graduated from university to be a teacher. To be frank, I can pay him more than what a teacher would get paid. And he is wonderful. He's going visiting kids. We talk to the administrators, to the teachers. He gives me reports because we want these kids to know that we're very involved in their lives and we love them and we're, we're concerned about how they're doing. And um, this all sounds great. Um, do you think how, how do you how, how do you think all this ends? Well, um, a, a few years ago, I was thinking about how do I phase this out, and then the last couple of years, and especially since my brother came with me last summer, we decided we wanted to make this something that lasts beyond our lifetime here, especially in memory of our parents there. And so, um, I actually just recently officially got the letter from the IRS to be our own nonprofit. We always piggybacked on somebody else because I wasn't going to do that to start with. So we are now taking steps in hiring the young man in Kenya is one of those steps to make this something that will last. So someday when I'm gone. It will still continue. Well, congratulations on what you've done here. This is terrific. And I, I hope lots of people will help you out. You can go to hopefordago.org and find out more about the uh, Bernard and Elsie Weiss Dago Scholarship Fund. And it's been great to have you, Brett Weiss, and keep up the great work. Thank you very much, Jerome. It's been an honor. Tomorrow on Worldview, we'll talk about the upcoming Italian elections. Silvio Berlusconi is making his big comeback. It's quite an entertaining story. Hope you can join us us tomorrow for Worldview. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.